0: It's so much fun. Hey, and fuckers, welcome into show notes. We've got a lot of feedback this week, even though we didn't have a full episode. We had a couple of smaller episodes. Something that was not so small was our last show notes, where we went on for approximately 72 hours. And it seems like a lot of the feedback actually came from that episode itself. But you might have heard our phone a friend with Lily Geismer, the author of Left Behind. I was very excited to do that interview with Lily. Uh, I think it went great because I learned a lot of new stuff that I didn't even get from the book. She contextualized things in, in a great way, and we learned a little bit about why she put the book together, how she went about researching it, and so I thought that was terrific, and we really appreciate her coming on the show and giving us as much time as she did. And what else did we have, 99.
1: We had our student debt topical cream. Topical cream. You just wanted to make me say it.
0: That's right. Thanks. So we did a topical cream as a follow-up on student debt now that Biden has made his very big, wonderful announcement. And we got some feedback on that as well now that it's officially here. So we'll go through it as quickly as we can. Just a couple of quick housekeeping notes before we start. A reminder to everybody that the initial run of our merchandise is now available In our store. So if you go to UNFTR.com, you can find a link to our merchandise. Where is that? What does it say on that? What do you mean? Is it merchandise? Is that what it's called? Merch. Merch? Is that the header?
1: Yeah. UNFTR.com slash merch.
0: Okay. So you can find merch. You can buy shirts and T-shirts and hats and just a bunch of cute stuff. And a lot of unfuckers are actually wearing them right now and sending us pictures, which is what we want you to do, by the way. I don't know if anybody's gonna be able to top Maria from Puerto Rico in the bucket hat though. I'm just saying that, just saying. It's not a competition, I'm just saying. So just pretty cute. Substack is another thing I wanna talk about. We have a free Substack. One of the reasons we probably can't get found or rank in any of the top rankings on Substack is because we are free and we're always going to be free. As such, it's not easy to necessarily find us when you search there, so we have to send people there. The easiest way to do that is to go to UNFTR.com and then click on the Substack link, and it'll bring you right to it, and you can sign up to receive the essays that the episodes are based around in your inbox every single week. There you have it. So Substack, always going to be free. All the essays that we do are going to be free. There might come a day when we're not even on Substack. Just putting that out there. But we want everybody to go over there because obviously that's where you can get the quasi transcripts for the show for the main shows which are in the essay form and we also include a lot of the resources and the links and the books and just kind of puts everything together in one spot so a lot of resources for you on UNFTR.com please check it out now looking forward into the fall can't believe summer is coming to a close but we're recording this on one of the last days of August and we'll be into September by the time you hear this and so we're looking forward to the fall a few things that we're going to cover a few things to look at. Number one is it's going to be the season of razors, not like shaving razors, like raise, like raising money, raising friends, and raising some hell. So we're going to have a whole season of friend raisers, fundraisers, and hell raising. We're going to invite you to participate in that as best you can to whatever ability you can. If you can donate money to us, we're going to ask that you donate money to help support the show. If you cannot donate money, we're going to ask that you commit your friendship to us and raise some friends, get some other people involved in our social media campaigns, get some people involved in Twitter, on the Facebooks, on the Instagrams, all the places. And if you've done all of those things or even if you haven't, we're also going to invite you to raise some hell with us. The midterms are coming up. It's important that we get noisy, that we get active and that we make ourselves known. So that's the trifecta of raising that we're going to do in the fall season.
1: We're going to raise... Like zombies from the dead.
0: I don't know if we're gonna raise zombies. We might raise the roof because it's on fire.
1: I reject this.
0: I'm just hoping Manny punches some shit. In. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. Are
1: we gonna do something spooky for Halloween?
0: Ooh, Halloween.
1: Wait, we could do something like. The great something, Charlie Brown. Like the great something, and then a bad person. Maybe that's
0: when we officially bring the sketches back.
1: Yeah. For Halloween. That'd be fun.
0: Okay. Will you remember to remind me to do that?
1: Yeah, or we could do like a Hocus Pocus theme because people love Hocus Pocus, and they're making a third one, second one.
0: That movie with Bette Midler.
1: Yeah, except I think she's a turf now or something.
0: People love that.
1: Oh yeah, it's a big thing. Is it? I think it happened when the nostalgia bug like spread everywhere. Uh huh. This is my theory on nostalgia. Everything is so bad. Yeah. I don't think that. I think this is a shared theory. It's not like I've been hypothesizing. I see. Everything is so bad that everyone just wants simpler times than their childhood, so things from our childhood are now, like, hyper in the zeitgeist, so people love Hocus Pocus. Okay. Enough that they're making a second one.
0: Okay. It's
1: kind of a weird movie. Have you ever seen it? No. It's about, like, these witches who sacrifice a boy virgin or something, and then he's a cat. I don't know.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: And it's got Sarah Jessica Parker.
0: Not a good actor. Okay sorry I mean okay
1: I don't know that's like seems like a bold statement I know
0: her and Matthew are the toast of the town in New yeah. York
1: well Matthew also you know he killed that person that time
0: he didn't mean it
1: <laughs> yeah I mean he did it it's a
0: terrible thing to bring up <laughs> well I, what, it's like bad actor murderer like why I mean, would you
1: I isn't mean, that what you like
0: I said they're the toast of the town I in thought New
1: we York. were raising hell isn't and, this what it's about
0: <laughs> that's, you're right there we go Totally on brand.
1: Thank you. For me, especially. (laughs) Uh,
0: So in addition to our season of raising hell, raising funds, and raising friends, we're also going to take a look at some bad actors in the world in a series that we're calling tentatively our Enablers series. And we're going to knock out a couple of episodes looking outside of ourselves, kind of. So looking at other countries, looking at some other experiences, and some... I think large misunderstandings about the political and economic nature of a couple of countries that wind up blowing back on us because our perception of them is such that it's used in particularly conservative circles to demonstrate the bad of the world, as opposed to looking at some of the good things that happen there. We tend to demonize certain parts of the world to say, oh, let's not become them. So that might give you a hint as to who we're going to look at.
1: Hear me out. Sure. Bad actors, mm-hmm. bad apples, bobbing for bad apples. Halloween.
0: Bobbing for bad apples. <laughs> we just plunk our heads into a bucket and pick a bunch of cops out.
1: <laughs> well, I didn't say that. You said that. You're right.
0: Uh, we're also going to take a look at the FCC. This is a longstanding request, particularly from Knudsen, but a bunch of others along the way. And that'll allow us to pull in some prior threads like Telecom 96 and the elimination of the fairness doctrine under Reagan. So you had Reagan with the Fairness Doctrine, you had Clinton with Telecom 96 and the deregulation of the telecommunications industry, and those two things, how they impacted us and how things like net neutrality continue to haunt the way that we consume information in this country.
1: I forgot about net neutrality until recently.
0: That's a big one.
1: Because remember, it was like, if net neutrality ends, we'll never have freedom again. And then everything stayed the same as far as I can tell. Yeah, like I'm sure things are happening behind the scenes, but I wasn't personally affected. Where were you? Did net neutrality cause my depression?
0: Maybe contributed to it. Okay, Maybe I'm excited to, to it. find
1: out along alongside all the fuckers.
0: Okay, and then we're going to do some economic deep dives as we head into kind of a global recovery of the supply chain. Try to make sense of some of the persistent elements of inflation and evaluate what other parts of the world are doing to grow their economies against an increasingly dire climate situation. So we've got a lot to unpack going forward and I'm excited to get to it, but for today, we're still combing through a ton of feedback on our healthcare episode, but maybe more so from show notes where 99 and I had some freeform discussions, we'll call it on pharma and vaccine and natural medicine and all that. So we have lots to get to and most of it pretty angry with me and I'll take it. So let's get into it. We'll start with emails. We've got Christine G kicking it off with Love Your Podcast. Learning new info and the different perspectives offered is always eye-opening, often shocking. Regarding student debt, did you know that low-income, need-based scholarships are taxed? Yep, I couldn't afford to send my child to college and based on their academic excellence, they were accepted into an elite private college in Boston that required, living on campus for all four years, the scholarship money for room and board, and non-qualifying academic expenses were taxed. The past four years, we've paid taxes on 20 grand and it came to about $4,000. Christine, I did not know that. Somehow I missed that. And that is fucked. I don't know how else to put it. Well, it makes sense to me that if you actually got private funding from a for-profit company, that that would be a giveaway. The fact that it's not a complete below the line item and non-taxable if it was uh, a federal loan that to me is is kind of absurd and un- unreal I'm gonna say that it is the case I'm gonna look into it after this episode uh, just to just to make sure that I've, I've got my ducks in a row there but um yet another thing in this entire mess that just doesn't make any sense goodness gracious so let's get out of student debt and get into some of the health care
1: yeah, so this first one is from Sam E., who we mentioned, I think, in show notes as well, who is one of the contributors to the original healthcare episode. Sam once again, has some great feedback from us. Some of it will make it into upcoming shows, but there's one area that we highlighted that speaks to the complexity of our systems we wanted to share, and it relates to outcomes. So Sam said, Outcome measurements seem legitimate at face value. However, it holds the industry hostage for a few things outside of their control. If a patient with diabetes is being treated optimally at a clinic, but they live in a food desert, they cannot find the proper nutrition. Maybe they don't have a refrigerator at home to keep their insulin stored properly. Their A1C fails to improve and a provider, let's say they serve a huge indigent population. The provider gets a terrible quote grade because of their quality measures. First, this means their reimbursement rates from the insurance company goes down. Eventually, it will likely mean they lose their job, and then a high probability that this community will be without any sort of facility for any kind of problem. I'm sure I don't have to draw the lines for you to understand that this undoubtedly happens more in poor, non-white communities.
0: Yeah, so like 99 said, Sam actually sent in a number of really important items that will make it into the episode coming up and then probably future episodes down the road. I wanted to highlight this one in particular because... There was a shift during the ACA, and and it continues to this day, to try and measure outcomes in the theory that that would help with the cost containment issue. We're going to describe a little bit why it doesn't get there necessarily. But the theory on its face is kind of sound that instead of paying providers for the things that they prescribe, the devices that they wind up prescribing to patients or using in surgical procedures, the amount of CT scans and MRIs and all those kind of things, instead of overloading the patient, trying to come up with the best care protocol possible to deliver the best outcome, because that's the job of a healthcare provider, and then measuring the outcome in a formula that then defines the reimbursement for those things. So, If the outcome is positive, you get paid more. If the outcome is negative, it doesn't matter how many tests you order, blah, blah, blah. So that's that's the working theory that has not been perfected, but you'll hear hospitals and medical professionals talk a lot about outcomes. I found this comment to be more interesting than maybe Sam even realizes, because back in the day, again, back in my reporting days, I did a lot of work, as people know, in reporting on native communities. And one of the biggest obstacles to professionalizing care in the communities was the lack of access to reimbursable resources. So you would have medical providers, you would have certainly very well-intentioned medical providers that didn't have a lot of things available to them. They didn't have a lot of the modern aspects of medicine. They also didn't have hospitals that they could necessarily send people to. Let's say it's just a clinic or an outpatient clinic or a specialist clinic. They didn't have a lot of hospital resources for the bigger, larger, more complicated cases and surgical cases. But they also didn't have things like dentists. They didn't have eye care professionals. There's so many parts of being rural and poor. And then if you are a rural, poor, native community on top of it, the ability to provide professional care and even get doctors interested in practicing in these areas was very, very challenged, very difficult. The Biden administration to me has already done more to try and cure that. And if I'm being totally honest, the Trump administration towards the end with a lot of the carve outs in their stimulus bill did a lot to try and solve this by throwing money at the problem. Another rationale for trying to create some sort of central authority for care, and this is a difficult thing to parse because now now I'm talking about pure socialized medicine where the government is entirely in control of administering healthcare, irrespective of reimbursements and pop counts and all that kind of stuff. One argument for that type of bureau to exist within the government is to provide high quality care in very poor and rural parts of the country. So yes, how can you measure outcomes in an area where people just don't have access to clean water, you know, maybe employment, government services, or as Sam says, what if they live in a food desert and it's it's they have to take care of themselves with the proper amount of nutrients and and clean food? If these things aren't available to a population, obviously the outcomes are going to be impacted. So there is no perfect system when we're talking about reimbursements. And to me, this just layers on to the complexity that's involved in trying to prop up a system that is all based upon profit motives it simply doesn't work and and the further down the the further down the wealth and and poverty scale that you get, the worse it's by definition going to be if the entire system is rooted in a profit motive so uh, I just wanted to call that out and thank Sam for putting that in along with the other ideas and some of the ideas that That obviously spawned the first episode as well. Now, leaning further into that, we've got Bookstore Kim, who said, listening to the healthcare episode, ironically, on my way to an appointment. My question is about the state's involvement in healthcare. Here in Vermont, we have Dr. Dinosaur, a program started by Governor Howard Dean. Yeah! Which ensures all children completely until they're 18, including Dental 99. There you go. I'm very grateful for this and wish it could be the same for everyone. I guess the question is, if Vermont can get its coverage to so many people, why don't other states do the same? I know Vermont offers a marketplace for folks who have to pay for insurance if it is not offered through their employment and that is expensive. Boil it down, what's the role of states in healthcare? The one aspect of this that we're gonna touch on, Bookstore Kim, is during the ACA, the decision to allow states to open their own exchanges, or not. And the decision on the part of some states not to take any of the matching federal funds to start their own exchanges and the decision of several states to actually cut Medicaid funding. So we do have, and we have another listener actually that, that mentioned the, uh, the disparate types of systems that exist within Canada. And it's, it's more separated in Canada than it is in the United States, but the states are able to actually tackle this issue. The question is whether they want to or not. It really does become a question of what the governing ethos of the state is with respect to general welfare of its population. How much of that the state considers to be a federal problem? How much of it the state considers to be a state and a state's rights problem? And then the willingness and the political will to then tackle that problem. Oftentimes what you see in some of the poorer states in the country is They believe it is a state's right issue. They do not want to be dictated to by the federal government. And there is no political will to do anything that would ameliorate the general welfare of the population because they still operate under some sort of libertarian fantasy that uh, people can just take care of themselves. And if you have a problem, you just go to the doctor and pay for it. and Sort of the Ron Paul imaginary system where we just go back to the way it was post-industrial revolution where uh, if, you, if you're if you sick, you just go to a doctor. Maybe that doctor will make a house call and someday they'll get paid. And if you're on hard times, the doctor would just forgive the bill and doctors didn't make enough money, yada, yada, yada. So it is a state right to tackle this issue in a different way that is more comprehensive than the federal programs and systems that are available. It is also the right of the state to not do that and to chip away wherever it's possible for budgetary concerns, or just because again, there's a different guiding ethos and philosophy within the state. In Vermont, you have a very independently-minded, not like your neighbors in New Hampshire necessarily, but in Vermont, you have a very independently-minded state that likes to take care of its own stuff. And you see that in the people that you wind up electing. But at the same time, uh, you have a smaller economic base, so there's only so much that you can do. But the fact of the matter is that Vermont as a state shepherds its resources more completely, more fully into things that positively impact the general welfare of its citizens. The short answer to the question is it's a choice. And places like Vermont take that choice and population care more seriously. Other states would see that as giveaways and more of the welfare state. And, and that's sadly as simple as it is.
1: So next, we have an email from Oivin K, who said, My question regarding the American healthcare system is how did the industry and politicians manage to sell this to the public? Looking at this from Norway, it boggles the mind. Sure, the Norwegian healthcare system has its flaws as well, but at least I don't need to pay expensive insurances. And even though my father had a heart attack, cancer for 10 years, and my child had a prolonged, complicated birth, she's fine. Everything went well in the end. It never cost me or my family a dime. Why doesn't every American want this? It's such a no-brainer. P.S. Any shows about Ben Shapiro or the intellectual dark web coming up, I'll let you take the first part. Then I will yell about the second part.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So the first part is a very long story that we're attempting to paint. And that is that, you know, in a lot of ways, America was first. Coming out of World War II, the Western world was really laid to waste and obviously parts of Asia as well. And the world had to rebuild and we were first to do it, but we already had very mature special interests and the advancements that were made during the wartime period as a result of wartime spending, but also the social safety net programs that were instituted under the new deal caused America to be in a position to innovate rapidly. There was a lot of money at play and we borrowed the best and the brightest from around the world to begin launching initiatives in many different directions. You can look at it as the the highway system, for example. So started before Eisenhower, but then really became a big deal under Eisenhower and then gained funding for the next 20 years until we had interconnected highways all throughout the country. That was a miraculous innovation. We had healthcare innovation because there were so many things that we learned from uh, the proliferation of new drugs during World War II, but also, sadly, new technologies through World War II that wound up actually being helpful in the medical sector, and the sciences sector. And so there was an explosion in that as well. We had a population explosion, and we had a need to keep growing the economy, and money was available at every turn. So the the real hardcore investments in our country came at a time when we had a lot of people clamoring to be a part of it, and we built everything out first. When you do that and you build really big in a short period of time, there are gonna be a number of problems that occur along the way. And you're gonna have a lot of different interests involved that were making money along the way that want to retain their power in decision-making authority. So you had doctors and the AMA set against the burgeoning insurance class, the employer class, the union class that was defending their healthcare primarily. And then you had the government itself that was looking to close some gaps as we, as our population was expanding and increasing. And they still had the, the wounds from the Great Depression era when so many people went without healthcare. All this new technology available, all this new pharmaceutical research available, and we wanted to deploy it as, as big and as brash as we could. But at our core, we are a profit- driven country so that we see everything first and foremost through that lens and it comes back to that question of general welfare a while back we did episodes on capitalism where we actually talked about how the words of adam smith were sort of twisted over time by people like francois Quesnay or jeremy bentham and some of the physiocrats and then we got into the later years when you talk about the Chicago School and Mont Pellerin, that's sort of one of our big overarching themes of, of the podcast. Obviously, over time, the idea of general welfare was suppressed and and wasn't at the forefront of our policymaking thinking. In the twenties and the thirties, there were exceptions to that, as we've talked about with the socialist and democratic socialist movement. But for the most part, we were very much in, in, on the side of big business, and that the big business people and the markets could cure these things and government largesse would fund these things to be able to you know to progress and it looked like it was working so we always thought that that we were going to be able to to devise a better way to solve a problem instead of looking at the root cause of the problem the root cause is capitalism and greed And I don't use those as throwaways. One of the things I dislike about some other shows is that they'll just lay capitalism to waste and say, oh, and use it as a throwaway term. The underpinnings of capitalism, as they were originally intended, were for the general welfare and the benefit and for the arts community, for education, for health. That's how capitalism was originally designed. That got lost over time to the capitalist structure that we have today, which is profits above all else, and you know who who gave us that guiding principle. And that's sort of like the arc of how capitalism was interpreted in this country. When the healthcare system was set up, that question was at the core of the discussion. Not about the patient, but about the provider. We built a system around the provider. That's how things got so out of control. It wasn't a question of selling it to the American public so much as it was a constant tension of how to allow corporations to make a profit, but still produce solid outcomes for the population. And again, for a while, it looked like it was working, just like everything else. But today, we have these amazing highway systems, but we don't have high-speed rail. There are parts of Sub-Saharan Africa that have better connectivity and cell service than some of the rural parts of this country. Because they were able to invest in broadband from the start, whereas we were, you know, working on a an, on a very antiquated copper system and 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 structure of telecommunications and so on and so forth. So a lot of times, when you are first, you look like the innovator, but it creates these entrenched problems over time that become more and more complicated to dig away at. So again, it wasn't a question of selling it to the American public. The American public has always bought in to the notion that capitalism can fix these things because capitalism equals innovation but what it ignores is the very fundamental aspect of capitalism from its founding which was excess profits excess capital surplus capital after labor is paid should go back to the general welfare of the population and that's what's missing over the years so we sort of have a misunderstanding but it wasn't a question of like selling us one way or the other that's the best way i can frame it and of course i have thoughts on part two, which is any shows about Ben Shapiro or the Intellectual Dark Web coming up, but for that I'll pass it to 99 first.
1: You can have your thoughts too. I was just going to say, I don't know if we have any plans, but I want one because I'm endlessly fascinated and angered by the Intellectual Dark Web and the mostly men you know, involved. Uh, the podcast Trust Me just did actually a pretty good episode on this with someone named Virginia Heffernan who sort of accidentally joined the internet in in the intellectual dark web. Apparently I can't say that word because she signed up with this book publisher with all these connections to all the guys and Epstein and all this shit and like Mm. just a unraveling. So I'd listen to that if you're interested, but I want to do one. I know, I know we talked about Shapiro in the past where you don't want to take him down specifically in a direct format because then he'd send his little trolls after us. But I think these other guys we could fuck with.
0: Yeah, you know, my take on this all throughout has been I'm not looking to get unfuckers into a proxy war, nor am I interested in evaluating the veracity or the impact of the independent platform man, as as we called them before. We can have takes on them. We can have takes on why people like this rise to prominence and are so effective at steering the public discourse to me that is fascinating and there are so many out there beyond the very obvious top level Fox News Newsmax type of uh, you know outlets that that make this happen
1: I don't even consider see that's what I, I don't even consider that's not the that,
0: dark web right yeah,
1: that's just like you know like the red pill blue pill black pill people use now like red pilling is like into MAGA like, to me, that's this, like, obvious red pilling. This is, like, the black pilling where, like, a Jordan Peterson who has the credentials because he is technically a doctor. And he is an eloquent person, allegedly. So it's more of this slow burn indoctrination where when you listen to a few, you're like, I can get behind this. And then all of a yeah. sudden it's, like, the eugenics come out or whatever. So I don't even... Yeah, I would honestly that Prager is a little more obvious, but I would consider Prager like a total gateway to the intellectual dark web.
0: Right. So if I was I was thinking about it, it's sort of like a tiered structure. So if at the top you've got the Fox News of the world, which are which are still going to predominantly an older audience, obviously. But at the top, you've got the the true gateway into that line of thinking. And then below that, you've got the the Newsmaxes of the world. That are, that are pretty widely distributed at this point. Daily Wire is no longer part of the intellectual dark web. I think that what Ben has created is very much on the forefront of conservative political mainstream thought, that he went from the fringes and then by touring college campuses and really putting the work in. I mean, he's a young man, but the, the amount of work that he's put in over the past several years that at least he's been in my awareness has been remarkable, and he's built an organization from the ground up that is now teaching people from the top down. It's changing the language, and it's bringing the language of that dark intellectual web closer to the mainstream for sure. And I think that he's done a brilliant job in in helping destroy our politics that way. And then you've got his sort of like, I guess they're the the hangers on that are around that, and and part of the network loosely associated with it that are also. In some cases, part of talk radio and talk radio is still a very big thing. So you've got people like Mark Levin that on, in any other circumstance, yes, he appears on Fox News, but it's his talk radio stuff that is, is I would consider part of the older person, dark intellectual web. It's really scary shit that, that he puts out there.
1: Intellectual dark web. What did I say? Dark intellectual web.
0: Intellectual dark web for old people, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: you're you're doing the old person version. I am.
0: <laughs> um, but then you've got younger people like like a Dave Rubin or a Michael Knowles or any number of these characters or Ca- Candace Owens that are contributing to that. But now we're more mainstream. What's concerning about it to me, and I don't know much about what it looks like in the deeper dark web but i know it exists and it's out there and that's where you get into a lot of the neo-nazi propaganda that's where you get into a lot of the white nationalist stuff that happens in in dark corners of the internet so in, in many ways we're trying to set ourselves up as an antidote to that line of thinking by going back and providing some historical context around some very real political and economic circumstances in this country to explain how we got to where we are I don't know whether it does our listeners a service to understand why, you know, Uncle Tony at Thanksgiving dinner got to where he is in life when he used to be a machinist in a union and vote Democrat his whole life. Is it useful to continue to explain Uncle Tony's trajectory by, by blowing out the dark web? And and it, it or do people really kind of understand that those people are on their own journey and we're not speaking to them? Like, is the I guess my question ninety nine is like, is that really our job, and where our time and resources are best put into use?
1: I mean, I think what is our job is a bigger question in life, because it's it's self (laughs) ascribed. Our job can be whatever we want it to be. I do think it's important because, and this broadly goes to things like this, like you know, I've wanted to do. The kind of QAnon indoctrination thing, which is similar but different. And I know that's not necessarily like your lane or your comfort zone, but I think it's important because a lot of what we talk about doesn't feel actionable because it's history. This is living history. It's been going on for a bit, but it's very prevalent and ripe right now. So talking about it, explaining it, explaining how to combat it, like later we get to Jeremy's email, who is the one who wrote in last week about Jordan Peterson uh, asking us to refute some claims. And we just sort of kind of we made fun of Jordan Peterson. We didn't really we we said we can't really do it because his claims are false. But we could have done a better job of actually walking through. So things like that, where the amount of men I'll encounter in my life who do and women that's, you know, I don't want to just say men, but like who do Rogan's not even in the dark web, but that type of thinking of, you know, the transphobia, this and that. And so I think it's important to talk about it, not all the time, but sometimes because there are lessons we can teach. Because if you have, you know, it all it takes, just like with the with the Prager, what was it? It takes 30 minutes to indoctrinate a conservative. Some of these videos, all it takes is one for it to spark something and be like, I thought that, but I've never said it. And maybe if they had a conversation with us instead of them, we'd be able to walk, walk through and say, hey, actually, you know, it's kind of regressive thinking. Maybe if you think about it this way, whatever. So if we're arming our listeners with the language and the understanding, because I don't think all of the people who follow these content creators, if for lack of a better word, I don't think they're all as hateful as some other constituencies. I don't think there is hateful. I think it's like confusion and true, like, planting these thoughts and ideas because their followers never have their own ideas. They're always regurgitations of them. Our listeners always have their own ideas. They don't just take what we say and, and give it back. They put their own spin on it. I feel like, and obviously, again, being very, I'm generalizing, but I think that it would be easier to coax someone out of let's say the intellectual dark web following then like a QAnon. And if we can help people do that, just like we help them talk to it from supporter in an episode or, you know, something.
0: It's so. interesting how these things, how they live along a spectrum. I remember when the times came out with an explanation, they did like a, it was like a 10 part podcast series on QAnon and the origins of QAnon and how a lot of it started in the, bro culture gaming community and, and shaming female gamers and then some weird conspiracies that came along with that. Like you never really, getting to the root of where some of this stuff is birthed is super fascinating to me, without a doubt. I guess the way I'm more programmed and hardwired is to look at the outputs and look what look what people are saying and be like, oh, okay, well, this doesn't align with reality, but I understand how we got here. So let's talk a little bit about that. So in that spirit, it does make sense that we would look at some of these dark corners to figure out where these ideas began to to, to gestate and then uh, you know eventually found their way out. So to that extent, yes, part of it on my on my end is is a fear of of going down these rabbit holes because they're mentally taxing and extremely toxic. And if every single thing that you encounter. As a student of history, as somebody who understands uh, politics and economics in this country, when you go down these rabbit holes, I find them even more dispiriting because all of their foundational information is built upon lies. And so you keep unraveling lie after lie after lie. And it it's almost like in a debate, there's a technique. And Ben Shapiro is actually a master of this called Gish gallop, where you just throw out seemingly related conclusions in rapid fire to a question where it may or may not relate to it. And then you find yourself in that debate trying to counter each one of those things, meanwhile losing your point, losing the sense of the question, and making you look extremely reactionary. It's an incredibly effective technique. It's, it's what the daily wire is basically built upon. It's a built around that type of discourse and if each piece of it fundamentally is a lie you can expend a lot of energy and a lot of time trying to dismantle those original lies instead of the root causes and so I, I find it troubling work to do but you're right it may be super important to do and it may be even more aligned with how we go about the world that I'm even giving it credit for so I guess we'll leave it as an ellipsis but it's because I'd have to really, I think the best way to attack it is to look at an outcropping of something, a policy, for example, transgenderism, right? So looking at the antipathy towards the trans community that was sparked on the right, how it has become a rallying cry on the right, and how people are actually voting because they're afraid that the transgender community is somehow going to, I don't even know what, I don't even know what actually the fear is other than the fear of the unknown and the other, right? Looking at that one isolated thing and then trying to take that all the way back into like where that came up. One of the problems with the alt-right side of this equation is that a lot of it, as we're discovering, is funded by dark money sources and billionaires who have a specific agenda. To me, it's more, it might be more helpful to look at Peter Thiel's worldview and then all of the things that he funds to look at where all of the the policy things kind of started because they're, they're bad moneyed actors behind a lot of this stuff and they create talking points that are used throughout the. podcasting community. And then they're used throughout think tanks. And then these talking points are recirculated until they bubble up into the mainstream. And then they're accepted as facts. But somebody starts this shit. And I guess I'm as fascinated, if not more fascinated with who the money people are that are actually paying all these people. It's very lucrative to be in the Daily Wire space and in their sort of sub-genre in the dark web. It's very lucrative because people pay them directly like directly like so imagine george soros was actually a liberal funder of stuff like this i would have a direct pipeline through some shell company that george soros set up who would be feeding money in my bank account to say stuff but that doesn't happen on the left it only happens on the right and it's why you see people like dave rubin or people like who's that comedian that's uh shifted to the to the right and claims he's not on the right jimmy Dore, right those people went there because they're getting paid a lot of fucking money to do what they do and it's very hard for them to break off of that now
1: yeah but you're putting the max spin on it right now you're putting the like i think most of our listeners and i'm not saying that's not also important to understand but i do think most of our listeners have a good understanding of like where the money's coming from in insofar as it's bad but what what i think people want is to Sort of get inside these people's heads and then how to combat it in their daily lives. Because this is, it's becoming a problem. Like, I mean, I don't know if this person qualifies as intellectual dark web or just a disgusting man. But that Andrew Tate guy who's been popping up. oh, Yeah, I guess he's like some sort of martial artist. I don't know, boxer something.
0: He was a UFC fighter. Okay.
1: So apparently he's like just truly the most misogynistic and... Bad fucking person, and he was just recently banned from Facebook and I think Twitter. Facebook and Instagram are owned by Meta, so I'm wondering if also Instagram. But he was banned from a few platforms. Finally, I didn't even know about him till like it all just came to a head all of a sudden. And because now he's a martyr. No, I I heard so about some it, uh, yes, but I heard about it right before, like when people. I don't know, something must have happened that I you know did. I don't know the inciting incident of why all of a sudden people on my sphere were talking about it, but.
0: Well, women have no rights. It's okay to beat them. It's okay. Yes. I mean, he says, yeah. when we say misogynistic, it's it's go oh. go all the way to the yeah. extreme. It's, that's this guy.
1: It's women aren't people. It's right. objects. So, you know, I was reading like comments and other people posting about it and like teachers being like, this man's ruining children in my class. Like They say like, I don't respect you because you're a woman and you shouldn't be my teacher. Like things like that. So it is prevalent in the yeah. day-to-day. So that's why I feel like We need to take almost like a level-setting language approach of just this kind of thinking, especially when if the followers are parroting the argumentative styles of a Ben Shapiro, of a Jordan Peterson, you don't have a leg to stand on because you don't know how to combat that. Like, I 100% have experienced people arguing with me like that. I can't, it's not, I can't do it because I'm trying to, like, rationally talk through a point and then, you know, so if it's transgender sports. Well, oh, so what? So anyone should just be able to play anything? No, and I'm like, what are you, t- we're talking about one fucking thing here. Stop, you know, so I get it. So that's why I feel like it's important to talk about. And yeah. I think, I think people would respond really well to it.
0: I think so. I think so. I just, uh, I want to be very careful. I'm really not here as much as we make fun of people. I'm not here to pick fights. And it's not because uh, of any sort of cowardice. It's because... I think it does the work a disservice. So picking fights is to me is it's a way to increase numbers and get downloads and and but I always want to be very careful that we're not doing that. Yeah. We're we're trying to we're picking fights with ideas, not we're not people.
1: Yeah, I don't that's I'm that's not my, you know, my intent here either. Like I was gonna mention before the I, I talked about a couple of weeks ago, the Conspirituality podcast. They talk about a lot of these people and it's honestly sometimes like I love them. Sometimes episodes are boring because they're so methodically dissecting. Like, it's boring but interesting. You know what I mean? Because they're not trying to just, like, shit on these people. They're, they're taking their talking points. They're distilling it down. Right. So I suggest people, you know, check that out. They just did one on some guy's name is like JD or something or JP, I don't know, one of them. And there was, they played this snippet from it where he was talking about obviously transgender issues because always he was like, when I was five years old I wanted to be a cowboy but my parents didn't get me cowboy reassignment surgery. Oh my God. He literally said that and I was like, fuck you. He's going to get a hacklud to your head? So, hey. <laughs> yeah. Check that out. Check out the episode of Trust Me. I'll link them in show notes and we could put a pin in this but just don't worry on fuckers i i will crusade for this episode
0: all right let's go back into healthcare for a second here okay i like this one because this is from a doctor one of the theories not th- it's not a theory one of the assertions that i've been putting out there is that doctors especially general practitioners have been getting the short end of the stick since probably the 50s what the AMA was fighting for was to make sure that doctors maintained a sense of themselves and and their training so that they just treated the patients that they didn't have to become business people but doctors to me have been demonized and vilified over the course of this very long protracted and awful debate over the right type of healthcare in this country and doctors actually wound up with the least amount of agency in the system that we have now which is which is really shitty so this is a, this is from nick Who offers a slightly different perspective And I like to put uh, medical Professionals up top here First and foremost because they're the ones to me That are obviously on the front lines So Nick said I'm a family doctor And wanted to offer a little insight Into why doctors might not be in support of Universal health care. It is not because of money It is because of the bullshit Endless bureaucracy from our government Creating moral injury I practice in Oregon The OHA, Oregon Health authority, has been pivoting to value-based care rather than fee-for-service with a device called the Patient-Centered Primary Care Medical Home. The government and corporate America are great at hiding ruthless bullshit with words like value, patient, centered. It is a way for them to become middlemen and rob taxpayer dollars. I would like you to look through the link to the PDF for how I'm judged and reimbursed as a family doctor in Oregon. Then, honestly tell me if you want to practice medicine with the government in charge. The initial pages seem great, but once you get to the measures metrics is where the bureaucratic terrorism begins. My job is hard, and I love the real challenges and the magical moments. I despise the government's fabricated challenges. So I I really wanted to include this because on the one side, I'm saying that the medical practitioners are the ones with the least amount of agency in the system, and that on the other side, our best approach might be universal health care of some kind. There are a couple of different types of universal healthcare, which we'll talk about in the subsequent episode. One is a universally provided healthcare system, a la what the UK has. Another is universal coverage, which is more akin to what like Germany and France have. So we're going to we're going to parse those a little bit more. And I think it's important to add another layer of context to this. But what Nick is responding to here is, you know, hey, time out. You think that the insurance companies are creating a bureaucratic nightmare. Well, it's it's not. It's the government. So this is probably somebody who deals mostly with Medicare and Medicaid out in Oregon, or maybe the exchanges that are, have been set up by the government there. So there is no one-size-fits-all approach to moving forward, and it's important to have medical professionals at the table discussing what is the best possible next step and for the outcome of patients. And I understand that these are buzzwords, Nick. But that really is ultimately how we're measured. What are the health outcomes of our patient population? And we have to really figure out what we want from this system and who should be designing it and authoring it. What I do know is that I will trust the government to come up with more positive health outcome metrics than private insurers and private companies and and private systems and even healthcare systems that are supposedly nonprofit, like hospitals. But there is a huge tension in there that the whole industry has to conform to the same protocols and and cost metrics. So whether it's the government or the insurance companies, the cost metrics are the same. It's just a question of the level of reimbursement that one or the other gives. So I'm not sure that this is a government problem as much as it is a systemic problem with the fact that we are trying to solve this with insurance companies and for-profit hospitals and device manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies firmly at the table with probably a louder voice. So my guess is that it's a lot of their inputs that are causing a lot of the confusion in the government, creating more bureaucratic nightmare, trying to maintain, I guess, their position at the table, even though they're being sort of shouted out of, of the room. So. Very complex. I appreciate Nick sending this in because it gives us a a little bit of a different take on what physicians go through.
1: So now we're going to hear from an Uncanucker, Richard M., who said, I just listened to the U.S. healthcare episode. And although I agree with everything you said about the U.S. system, you did mention the Canadian system a few times. And I just wanted to say a couple things about that. One, Canada doesn't have a healthcare system. Every province has its own. Secondly, although I only have the experience to speak on the Ontario system... Is a common complaint of many people that the system is ineffective. And in fact, many Canadians that live near major cities like Detroit, Seattle, or New York City will go over the border to get health care. Because in my experience, I've had to wait five hours in the ER for a broken jaw.
0: Yeah, so thank you, Richard, for sending that in. It is true that wait times are longer in Canada. It is also true that they do not have the volume of sophisticated Scans and, and devices and equipment that we have here in the United States. Part of the reason that our distribution of healthcare per capita is so much more expensive than the rest of the world is because we have just so much expensive technology available in predominantly, you know, urban parts of the country or, or high population counts. But yes, it is. It is very true that we are overloaded with things. So you can wait several months for a CT scan or a follow-up visit or anything that is deemed non-life-threatening or, or not essential in Canada. And in terms of surgeries, what I will say is there's a lot of research out there that demonstrates that Canadians will cross the border for elective surgeries and uh, that they'll pay out of pocket for rather than wait the long lines. But when it comes down to critical care, they'll stay within the systems. And that holds true for a lot of people on the border. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the numbers are very, very small. So you don't have people going from Windsor to Detroit all the time or going from uh, Toronto to Buffalo to get services for any sort of critical or chronic care as much as you do maybe for some elective surgeries where they simply don't want to wait and also have the means to, to pay for that. So uh, we're going to dip into that a little bit. Full disclosure, Richard and others that are curious about benchmarking the US against global systems. We're gonna talk a little bit about it, but we're not gonna do a super deep dive into it. We're just gonna talk about generally the different types of care distribution models and reimbursement models that exist. Some of the upsides, some of the downsides of that, because again, there is no perfect system. There are systems that are much more popular and much more highly rated than what we have in the United States. But I would go back to an earlier comment I don't think that we can look at the A, outcomes from the World Health Organization or the results of satisfaction surveys as a one-to-one relationship necessarily because there will always be other circumstances, cultural circumstances, certainly political and economic circumstances, but also health, general health, welfare, access to clean food circumstances, clean water. There are other things that contribute to the health and well-being of a population other than just what is the outcome of critical care within, inside the system and whether or not you have to file for bankruptcy because of it. So uh, we'll try to contextualize that as much as possible. But it is important to know that our system is different than Canada's system, different than Europe's system, different than what you might get in, in Asian countries. But everybody pays less per person. In most countries, industrialized countries, still have better outcomes. So it's funny because it this does go back to the doctors. Doctors are trained with presumably the the best research. They're trained with the best, you know, they're they're trained to do the best that they can for the patient with the available resources and and information and knowledge that they have and access to the, the things to treat them. But we have a system that doesn't allow them to necessarily get from here to there and get paid. So <laughs> it's funny that like somebody in, in Canada, a doctor might look at it and say, you, you know, based on all of these inputs, you don't need an MRI. Whereas you can bet that in the American system, if that person has great insurance, they're going to get an MRI because that's how the doctor can make money, but also avoid uh, malpractice litigation, right? So These things are all important. So, you know, just because you had to wait. Now, you having to wait however long you had to wait to to fix your broken jaw, that's absurd. That's a totally different system. And I am not taking away from your personal experience or trying to suggest that that was in any way right or moral as opposed to what we have here. The difference might be, though, that here you might have left with a, you know, a a $7,200 bill that you weren't able to pay. And if you went to court to try and get that down, the court would probably side on the insurer and you'd have to pay it. So, again, nuanced, a lot of different contexts we have to look at, but I appreciate you putting that in because we need context from unfuckers. That's a call-out, by the way, for down-under fuckers and Kiwi fuckers all the way to our, our Euro fuckers. Send us in your personal experiences as well so that you can help us contextualize. Are you from Norway and mystified at how fucking bad our system is? Are you from Canada and, like, I'd go across the border all day every day? Are you from the UK where you're like, I don't love our healthcare system because it invites uh, too many immigrants to the country because as soon as you establish residency in this country, you're able to get it. So our doctors are overworked. I mean, anything that you, any anecdote that you want to send in, I'd love to hear it. So on that note, we get to Darling Mickey. Hey, what's up, Darling Mickey? I was listening to show notes in the plant-based diet portion. So my question to specifically 99 is how does someone who eats low carb, high protein do this? I lost 65 pounds and have kept 50 of it off for five years by eating low carb. Whenever I see meat alternatives in the grocery store, the carb number is off the charts. How would someone do this eating this way? Plus, like 99 mentioned, I'm allergic to a lot of fruits and vegetables unless you cook them to almost nothing. That's a good question.
1: Well, I'll preface this by saying I'm not a dietitian, nor an expert, nor do I <laughs> eat low carb by any measure. I just kind of eat what I want. Is that a, is that bad? No, that's not at all. that's that's how I live my life. So there are a few things to consider here. One is that the meat alternatives. A big argument against them is always like, well, oh, you know, Impossible Burgers aren't healthy for you, and it's like, no, they're not health foods. They're created as an alternative to hamburgers, to beef, for people who like that, and you know, to be better for the environment and all those things. So the pre-made, you know. The pre-made meat alternatives like the Beyond Meat, like the Impossible Burgers, like the Boca Burgers, the Dr. Prager's, the Morningstar—like we can go on and on. Those aren't necessarily going to be the option. But if you go to things like tofu, like tempeh, like seitan, like avocado, the good natural fat, beans, chickpeas—that's kind of how you do it. And then the non-starchy vegetables if you can. So. Those are the options. It's definitely a more limiting thing. I mean, every, you know, dieting isn't I don't love the word diet because I think it puts this in your head of makes it restrictive. So like if you just eat a lifestyle, like it's not I'm not on a vegan diet. I'm just vegan. It's a vegan lifestyle. So like I said, I eat what I want. If it's vegan, I'm not worried, you know, I probably eat too much vegan junk food than I should. But when you're Restricting, you're naturally going to be more restricting more things if you wanted to be plant-based and low-carb and you have allergies. So, you know, that kind of seems like it might be really tough. If it's something that you feel passionate about, sure, try it out for, you know, a week. Try it out one day a week. But like I was saying, there are people, and we said this in our our veganism episode, like there are people who can't live a plant-based lifestyle and that's okay. No one's mad at you. As long as you try to make good decisions with the companies you buy from and support and other aspects of your life. Like, that's okay. If you have a lot of dietary restrictions, continue what you're doing if it works for you. Do you agree?
0: I would agree. I have nothing to add other than I would just add a little bit of Irish whiskey at the end of the night.
1: <laughs> sure. Does that have carbs in it? Don't know. <laughs> okay.
0: Don't know if that's a consideration. I'll check the label tonight.
1: Okay, perfect. Okay. But yeah, so... Darling Mickey, if you google, I did it while while we were sitting here, low carb high protein vegan diet. There's there's stuff out there. Again, you're definitely going to go down a little bit of a a fitness diet influency rabbit hole with those types of search terms, so if that's triggering to you, you know, people with history of eating disorders or disordered eating, just search with caution, I would say. It's a it's a slippery slope when you get into diet diet talk, and that's why I've been like super into maintenance phase and the podcast I recommended. And we had a we had an email last week, or this week was from- Is that
0: ma- Maintenance Phase? Ma-
1: yeah. What am I saying? Maintenance?
0: No, I was trying to make sure I understood what oh, you were saying.
1: okay. So it was mumbling.
0: Maintenance Phase is the name of the show.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned it last week. Weren't you listening?
0: Yes, I didn't remember okay. the name of it.
1: Um, I had a conversation with an unfucker who wrote in who- I think misinterpreted or I might have mis it because I haven't had a chance to listen back to what we were talking about. Um, we might have used the term obesity epidemic, which, you know, like there's a lot of, I don't, it's a point of contention because is it an epidemic? Is it the way we're looking at things? So, you know, right now I'm, I'm trying to be really sensitive to that type of, especially as we go down the healthcare route. And it just happened to coincide that I started this podcast and like really have been binge listening so, yeah, I'm just trying to be sensitive to to the language because America has such a focus on diet culture, on body image, on losing weight and being thin and all this stuff and being fit. And, you know, it's like it's like a part of our daily lives in where in other countries it's not as prevalent. So even just talking about it casually could be triggering to some people. Well, so.
0: I mean, a plus size model caused Jordan Peterson to leave Twitter. I mean, that was the real tragedy of the whole thing: is we were robbed of Jordan Peterson's voice because they decided to put a plus size model on the cover Who of a magazine. Even
1: who's barely plus size, you know? That's plus size models are like fourth. So it's so fucked up, you know. So so yeah, that's what you know. All that to say, I'm trying to be sensitive to it, and I understand that it's like super nuanced and complex. And like again, not a dietitian. In no way am I a historian of these things, but. Um, I'm really interested in them as a vegan, as a woman, as an American, all of these things, you know, things that affect me every day of we look at our celebrity culture. And, you know, I still get I still feel shitty sometimes when I see like really skinny celebrities. And I'm like, fuck. And then I'm like, all right, got to dial that back. You know, it's hard. It's it's so it's so indoctrinated into us.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm built like Brad Pitt in Fight Club, so it's hard for me to comment on it. I mean, I'm shredded. Let me I have an eight pack. He didn't exist,
1: technically. So, did you mean like meatloaf and fight club? Yes.
0: <laughs> uh, that's the number one request that trainers get from from guys. They're like, all right, so what are you shooting for? They're like, oh, uh, you know, Brad Pitt Fight Club. And he's like, cool, cool. It's never going to happen. Is that
1: still true? Yeah. How many trainers do you know? <laughs> Enough. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I don't believe you. Okay. Let me see the list. Okay. Okay. So here we go. Let's get into some shit now. Okay. So here's the context of the next few emails. We had that, we had a long, spirited conversation about vaccines. And it started because someone wrote in that we were saying, you know, maybe stop saying you're anti vax, like, he compared it to the Seinfeld episode where we like, I have a gay friend, not that it's a bad thing. And I was like, not comparable. Gay people and anti-Max people are not the same. Okay, so we had this conversation. Max gave his thoughts on some things, and I gave my thoughts on some things, and then people gave us their thoughts on some things. So yes, here we do. go with the first one from our friend, Asoke. Asoke said, Actually, let's do the, let's jump around and let's do the second part first, and then we can get in. Because Asoki made a point about uh, student debt and then the Facebook group. Mm-hmm. So bottom of Ahsoka's email said, super excited about Biden's plan. I don't have college debt, but this is huge for my friends and family. I want to dislike him so badly, but he has these moments where he does good things. So frustrating. But this was necessary, and I'm glad he did it. And then also want to shout out the UNFTR Facebook group. It's very welcoming and a nice space to connect. Thank you to Knudsen and for all of that. And all hail Nettie McGee. She's the best. I know. Now, jumping to the top. That
0: Facebook group is growing really nicely, by the way. I think there's almost 500 members at this point, uh, which is pretty cool. And uh, if you're interested in joining the group to meet a lot of the other unfuckers that we talk about every single week, you can go to unfuckers at all on Facebook and uh, join up. And you will be greeted by a message from Bob Knutson, who's uh, right now, by the way, working through some shit as his state is... uh, trying to privatize his job and a number of unfuckers are out there writing some letters and i would encourage you to as well you can find information about that on the uh unfucker facebook group to stop this privatization scam at uh, dobbs university very very frustrating and we're with you Knudsen.
1: yeah so okay that, so we're back to the the vaccine thing so asoki said i'm standing with 99 and that you should not be calling yourself an anti-vaxxer if you're not Saying you're an anti-vaxxer does feel like a little bit of a reach. I totally get what Max is saying about and, not... And
0: saying you're an anti overvaxer oh, does sorry. feel like a little bit of a reach. Okay,
1: thank you. Sorry. I totally get what Max is saying about not wanting to over-vaccinate your kids, and it's valid. It's just that the language is what makes it sound off-putting. That makes sense. The connotations of words matter.
0: Yeah, I think the whole thing's been certainly sullied by the anti-vax movement and the prominence that it got during COVID for sure and uh, even trying to put a spin on it to say, um, you know, anti-overvax, I suppose, or to try to define it within those terms is problematic. There are more comments coming about how people are just taking issue with any sort of concept regarding vaccination or over-vaccination, where they, they more firmly take me to task based on the science, and we'll get to those. But yeah, I'm I'm just I don't know if it's a camp necessarily that, you know, we're in one camp or the other rather than just kind of working through it. But as we've said before, language is super important. And, uh, and I think, I, you know, I've definitely learned through this process that categorizing it one way or the other by saying, you know, claiming an anti-vax or trying to assuage it, saying anti-overvax or whatever, uh, it's all kind of birds of the same feather and is, uh, and isn't helpful in moving any sort of public health discourse forward. So great comment from Ahsoka. Uh, Thomas said, Max, I'm listening to episode 71 show notes and nothing you've said has made me more angry than you keep stipulating the fact that there's a difference between vaccines and natural immunity. Vaccines do nothing to the virus at all. Vaccines train your body to fight the virus. It is identical to natural immunity. It is just doing it in a way that is safe and won't fucking kill you. That's the part that makes anti-vax or anti overvax like yourself, dangerous because you're implying that the vaccine itself is dangerous and that it doesn't do what it is actually going to do. You're implying that the vaccine fights the virus. It does not, not even a little. It trains our bodies to fight it off naturally. That's where antibodies come from and our bodies create the antibodies. Thank you, Thomas uh, Thomas S., for sending in that type of clarity. There's a lot of, I'm not going to call it confusion, but in the general public, the difference between a virus and a bacterial infection or the difference between immunity and natural immunity and vaccines and and all all of the discussions that we were having during COVID about the the type of virus that COVID-19 was, these things are well above my pay grade. They're above most people's pay grade. And this is where I do look to the professionals to say what something does or doesn't. And I don't want to mix our intentions with the show at all or claim that anybody's stance is smarter, better than anybody else's. I am virulently against the anti-vax movement. My decisions as a, as a young parent were more about what do I absolutely have to do and I will do it. My kids went to school. You can't go to schools. You can't be in school without doing all of the recommended vaccines. So I don't have an anti-vax stance, but what we did do when I was working in the journalism profession is look at the over-medication of children. And so I lumped vaccines into that, and that's probably irresponsible of me to say that so casually on the show, but over-medication of antibiotics. So you had vaccines, antibiotics, over-the-counter medicines and medications, and a lot of that seemed to be producing issues within children that were different than or or that masked some of the root causes. and that's where, as a new parent, it was such a challenge to navigate the system to try and figure out well, what what really is troubling my child? And a lot of it could be mental. So a lot of it could have been psychological issues that we were actually trying to treat with other sort of things that were not intended to, you know, to help support you know our kids from a psychological perspective or from a mental health perspective. It's very daunting to be a parent in the new world but the outcomes are better for kids than they used to be it's not like it was you know in the 60s 70s and or even in the in the 80s when I was you know coming up so do we have more incidents of 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 autism and and asthma and allergies and some some crazy stuff today that didn't exist when when we were kids yeah I think that's fair to say but did kids have different and worse health issues back then than we do today? And are we able to actually, do we have more resources to build natural, you know, things for for, for children today and, and make them healthier and and more, you know, medical interventions to, to help them live better, more productive, healthier lives? Yes, it's always a balance. And it's a question of, it's a question of what you're presented with, where you live. And listen, I'll go back to an answer that we got. From a pediatrician when we were asking about root causes of autism. So we were doing a series on one in nine. Why, why had the documented rates of kids that were diagnosed as on the spectrum increased to one in nine at the time? And there was some wisdom out there that said it was because we're keeping track of it more and that these things always existed. And that was sort of one camp. Another camp was the complete opposite end of the spectrum and it was everything was about mercury inside vaccines when they first came out and that a segment of the population for a good 15 years before advocates got involved to take mercury out of vaccines and that did it so those were that was like the the spectrum of answers and then when we posed the question after we'd done all of these articles and research and we said to a pediatrician when we look at rates of autism or we look at high rates of cancer in the area of new york that we lived in or we look at the is it there's more toxic chemicals in our landfills and uh, in our water supply is it high tension living near high tension wires is it overpopulation is it the fa- so things spread more easily is it that we've got uh, so many more vaccinations now is it that we've got antibiotics being used at much earlier ages is it that we're giving the different types of medis- medicines to kids or having people who aren't pharmacologists theoretically prescribed like force doctors to prescribe medicines to children is it that there the air quality is worse than it used to be is it and we went through this litany of things that we had heard through the research and the pediatrician looked at us and he said yeah all of it here's the thing every body every person every is is different there are certain fundamental truths of our biology and then you've got different responses to it you know it's why one person is allergic to something and another person isn't and they might have even grown up in the same household Everybody responds differently and that's why you have medicine and you have to diagnose these things and understand it. Is it possible that the confluence of toxic water, living near a landfill, having, you know, living under uh, power lines and getting, you know, amoxicillin that maybe you were allergic to as a kid 17 times before you were 2 did all of these things contribute to something that is now presenting itself in a different way? Sure, it's all possible. But every child, you can't do research and say that one thing is doing all of these different things unless you're talking about like leaded gasoline. It's a confluence of of factors that affect everybody differently. And none of that, none of that suggests that I'm anti anything related to medical interventions. What I am very interested in is understanding the root causes. It's the same in politics it's the same in economics It's the, i examine everything the same way what's at the root of this that's actually getting me to present in a situation where somebody would prescribe a specific solution or is it more complicated than that and so i'm defending the medical community i'm even defending the pharmaceutical community because i think that everything is more complicated than that and we as citizens we don't know we simply don't know but i understand why labels make people very uncomfortable. And I understand that by my lumping the sheer volume of vaccines in with the conversation about medications and, uh, you know, different type of medical interventions for children was probably wrongheaded and does the whole thing, the whole discussion a disservice. And I hope that makes sense. 99.
1: So this is from Bryno. It's similar to our email from Thomas S., who said max my dude i love you but i had to pause my listening to the latest show after your exchange with 99 re flu vaccines there's two things you said that i take umbrage with one there's little difference between natural immunity eg through infection and vaccine-induced immunity this idea is literally one of the lines anti-vaxxers have been using during the ongoing pandemic if you think about it both vaccination and infection are natural your body produces immunity not the infection or the vaccination the second point was that the flu kills people other than elderly and people with underlying conditions. This line has also been used during the pandemic in relation to COVID. So now all that being said, fuck Big Pharma, fuck over vaccination and fuck Milton Friedman.
0: Yeah, I listen, I think I've been getting a lot of the vaccine talking points wrong in the way that I've so casually dismissed them or put them in the context of of other issues, medical issues that present. Uh, so, I, you know, I again, not a doctor. I'm not going there. But the the one thing that I do appreciate, as I always appreciate it with our audience, is just the grace in which they approach the situation. Like how they could just be like, I'm writing in to say, I love you, but fuck you. And also fuck Milton Friedman. I love the fact that you're allowing us to kind of engage in this discussion as it comes on the heels of uh, you know healthcare episodes, where you have to trust that we're doing the research and, and understanding the nuances of these sectors. And I think that there's more nuance in the medical community there is than there is with any of the episodes that we're going to do on economics. You know, everything is nuanced and everything is complex, and that's why I try to firmly stay in my lane of understanding, and I appreciate any corrections that come along the way, such as, you know, vaccines will release the same level of immunity that natural immunity does. It's a, it's a way of activating the system. So thank you for clearing that up. Thank you for sending in the distinctions, and I hear you, and I'm with you.
1: One of the last ones here that I wanted to reference was from Matt in Portland, who said they were taken aback by some of the comments I think specifically I made about natural medicine. So Matt said, I do, however, disagree with blanket statements about natural medicine being a disgusting industry or some sort of farce and only trusting what Western medicine doctors say. So I just wanted to clarify that I said that I do think that the industry is more bastardized than the pharmaceutical industry than the mainstream. And I do still stand by what I said. I'm not saying that there aren't good natural medicine companies, that there aren't homeopathic doctors who have their patients' best interests in mind, and that there aren't solutions that work. But because the industry is just rife with snake oil-type supplements, or there's just so much. The history there is You know, I could talk for hours, but when we get down to, let's say, let's just take supplements, like most of them, they don't go through the FDA regulation. So Mm -hmm. if you put dietary supplement, you can sell anything to anybody and say it works and no one has to, they can say, you can't say this cures cancer on a bottle, but you can say it helps boost your immunity and your, your blood cells or all of these things. So there's all these loopholes that were, they were put in place to manipulate people to manipulate the psychology, to make people buy them. You know, we have the whole goop side of the world, which is you jade eggs, you put up your vagina, and all this this shit that, you know, moon juice and all of these things. So there are so many charlatans who are taking advantage of people who think that they're doing right by their body by going natural. I'm vegan. Of course I believe in natural things. Everything I eat is natural. Well, that's not true. Not everything. As I said, plenty of vegan junk food, but it's just I think it the industry preys on people and just like the pharmaceutical industry does prey on people. I, I'm no I'm like I said, I wasn't I think I said I either said sucking Pfizer's dick or licking Pfizer's butt. I'm not sure which one I said. Both are disgusting. So it's still like I'm still not, you know, in the pocket of of big pharma. They definitely prey on people too. But there's an honest, and again, being general here, there's an honest hope and like not innocence, because that seems pejorative, but people, I find people who want to engage with natural medicine to be like hopeful people who want to believe that there are things from this earth that will heal you. And I think that's a great belief. So it's taking advantage of trust. That's what, that's why I feel that way. There, there's like a, there's a, a phraseology I'm, I'm missing here, but I, I, think my, I think my point's getting across. So Matt, I apologize if if that offended you. You know, I'm sure you're doing your research on what you're getting and, you know, your, your neck of the woods and what you engage in is, is good for you and it's good for your family and you're going to know what's best for them. I'm not. I'm not in your family. I don't know you personally. So I apologize. And then again, there are people who are like, Drink fucking lemon essential oil, and it'll cure you. So that's where I come from in that in that way. I believe in some things. I take supplements, normal ones, <laughs> then maybe that's wrong to say normal ones.
0: No, but I mean proved
1: like, you know what I mean
0: I think you can synthesize vitamin C and have it be good for you if you don't have access to fruit yeah. or niacin can bring down blood pressure but make you flush and that, yeah, like garlic's
1: good for your gut or whatever. yeah,
0: like, or apple cider cider vinegar and all these type of natural remedies that can help, I think you know improve the the systems in your body or what have you. And and again, as an element of of health and maintenance, these are these are good positive things to do. But on you know on balance, when we look at an industry, you know, there's only does the apple cider vinegar manufacturer make a lot of money? God, I hope so, right? But the vitamin and supplement manufacturers that don't have to adhere to FDA standards and can make quasi-claims about health benefits and those things, they make a shit ton of money. It is a massive fucking industry where there is not necessarily a lot of science to support beneficial outcomes for taking them. At the same time, I don't know, does fish oil work? Maybe. I, I, I don't fucking know. Like, it's just... I think every person is different, every situation is different, every region is different, and whatever your personal chemistry and biology is, it, it, it matters. I think I gave the example that in the type of uh, cancer that my mother had, there was a natural practitioner that had prescribed heavy doses of, of vitamin C injections, and it was exactly the wrong type of intervention. As a matter of fact, this is the type of cancer that fed on that type of, of activity. Then again, I stand by chiropractic care because I had issues when I was younger and they were fixed by a chiropractor without any sort of like surgical intervention. There's great natural remedies and that's why these things exist and they've existed since time immemorial. And by the way, so much of what the pharmaceutical industry does is to mimic what naturally occurs, but in a synthetic form that is more targeted at a higher dosage. I mean- that's kind of the root of, of a lot of what you see pharmaceutical intervention does. So again, I think this is one of those topics, healthcare, vaccinations, antibiotics, medical intervention of any kind is one of those type of topic, topics that is going to be pitched because Personal. everybody's experience is different. And for everybody that you meet that claims that they are on you know, Lipitor or 10 other drugs that's keeping them alive, and maybe it's doing that, and it probably is, I can give you, you know, just as many people that are doing, you know, purely natural remedies and existing in a healthy life and going to a chiropractor once a week that are also living long. You
1: don't know. Or there is that, like, every now and again, it's like, this 99-year-old woman drinks 12 Bud Lights a day. <laughs> Like, right. Or smokes ten packs a day and it's like, okay, that person, I don't know. And the
0: answer to this is, is a lot of it is genetics. And that's true. Genetics and environment play a play massive roles in our experience and in, in our health experience as we live. And all of these different type of interventions, whether natural or prescribed, will impact us differently, depending on all those inputs. So you know, I have to be careful of making blanket statements because I'm so cautious in, as do you, as the, you know, as representatives of the show. If we say something during show notes that is sounds like a blanket statement, by all means, call us out. I do feel like the different standard for when you're listening to us and you're listening to this show is to make sure that if you hear something that's a blanket statement that you take umbrage with during the real show, that's sort of a different level i love this exploration and talking points and having this type of dialogue and i think that's why show notes has gained in popularity and we get so much feedback from it it's because it's us unfiltered unrestricted but know that in the the core episodes we're doing as much work and as much research that goes into every single statement that we make but even there there's probably nuance there's probably other perspectives and this is this is all complicated stuff there are no absolutes in this life There are no absolutes in the work that we do, but it's important to foster this dialogue. What I appreciate above all of it is that for as many people that told me to go fuck myself this week, and the one person that took issue with 99, because I know she's more popular on this show, (laughs) is that everybody did it using our language, telling, you know, they said, go fuck yourself and I love you. And I just love that about the show. And I appreciate that about unfuckers.
1: What if they say, I love you and go fuck yourself? All good. What does that mean, though? It's all good. But they're ending on a negative. It's fine. Okay. It's fine.
0: Order doesn't matter. Okay. Are we getting into some general feedback now? Yes. that's where are we some are?
1: general emails.
0: Okay. The first one comes from Paul C. I do have a suggestion. If you're ever looking for new topics, various countries come into the attention of media, both mainstream and independent, when something is calling attention to that country. But then we never hear much about how things turned out. The idea is to go back and revisit old news to let us know how things turned out. The example I have in mind is Venezuela, but Haiti also comes to mind. I love it, and I think that uh, I mentioned that up top. This is, this is definitely a source of inspiration for me to drill back into it. I I loved doing the episode on Cuba. I thought it was a really important one for us because of the proximity and because of how important the Cuban experience is to us nationally, because there's so there's such a heavy influence of Cuban nationals in florida that it has carries serious weight in our electoral politics beyond that it's just an interesting and fascinating story of our battle against one man who outlived like seven presidents and and all that stuff and how you know i think even in the debates for the last presidential election cuba and castro came up i mean it's just it just never ends i think venezuela is very similar to that Haiti is largely ignored. And we've done a couple of things touching on Haiti, by the way, Paul, if you want to go back and look at our uh, episodes on the Washington Consensus in particular, we did some work on how Haiti was treated. But Haiti deserves its own deep dive for a lot of different reasons. I'll just leave it at that. But thank you for the suggestion. And yes, the answer is yes, we will get into it.
1: So this next one is from Lydon M., who said, I have an idea for an episode that I think might interest you. It may tie into your common topic of peak oil. What about car-centric design and the unfucking of the car lobbyist car manufacturing in the, in the U.S. and Canada? This topic, I find, has been gaining a lot of traction, at least that I've seen online with public transit and the effects of urban sprawl. This could be a meaningful topic to unfuck for audiences. North America used to have a vast array of rail networks, inter-regional and intercity. Most major cities in the early 20th century had a very robust public transport network of electrified tram lines. Do you think that this would be a good episode to talk about?
0: No, I think it would be a great episode to talk about.
1: Oh, how
0: about that? Good one. Mm -hmm.
1: Did you know there's a a thing to go to? What's that place? The island? The, The thing in the air? Tram? Ferry? Nope.
0: Over to Randall's Island? Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had no idea it was there.
0: Oh, I was honored. It's awful. It's fucking terrifying. My roommate
1: wants to go. She, every time she's like, I want to go on it. And I'm like, don't. I don't. want." I mean, I said, I've seen Spider-Man. Yep. Remember when they get, is that yep. where it takes place? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. Because in the first, the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, they get stuck up in those cars.
0: There's only one Spider-Man as far as I'm concerned. And that is Tobey Maguire. Oh. I know people love whoa. Tom Holland. And I know that you love Andrew Garfield. <laughs> but I
1: love Tom Holland too. Tobey
0: is Spider-Man.
1: I'm not anti-Tobey. Okay. I think everyone brings their own. There is, they're like Doctor Who. <laughs>
0: mm. Everyone has their own spin. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: but I do think that his Mary Jane was kind of weak.
0: Her name is escaping me. Kirsten Jesus, <laughs> yeah. it was like hello. Hey, she just got married, right?
1: Uh, she's with Jesse Clemens Oh no, yes. wait, is yes. she? Yes, She used to be with Garrett Hedlund. I wasn't. I couldn't remember. So interesting. Yeah, Jesse
0: Plemons is the, a study.
1: the new <laughs> the new uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's right. We had a conversation with our friend and we were sitting around and he said he was watching something with Jesse Plemons and he, his thought was, that guy's the new, and it really sounded like he was going to say Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> and I was like, what? So now every time I think about Jesse Plemons, I just think about him going, that guy's like going to be the new Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. So, um, okay. Well, transportation. And we have... Uh, Derek R. wants a transportation episode.
0: Then you shall have it.
1: Yeah, both of them. We'll have to get them together. They can nerd out about transportation.
0: Okay. is this me?
1: David P. David
0: P. I know you're overwhelmed with stories that the audience wishes Max would cover, but I had to share this one. I know the show is a hard-on for Milton fucking Friedman, but other motherfuckers include fucking Dick Army. That's true. And the T-fuckers, as well as fucking Leonard Leo with the Federalist fuckers. Yeah, you know, we keep getting calls for it. And the recent news of the $1.6 billion dark money donation that wound up being sourced right back to a billionaire into the Federalist Society is just, I think, requires an unfucking. The question is, like, beyond the salacious news of, holy fuck, this asshole that's already fucked us with the, you know, by basically choosing the last four or five Supreme Court nominees now has $1.6 billion to do more undercutting of the legal system have to figure out what our lane is going to be there to figure that out uh that that offers something new and something interesting um because just on its face that's just like what the fuck anyway jeremy h gets into jordan peterson here we go max you are right about peterson however your triggered ego missed my main inquiry (laughs) i love him I need you to re-explain for me how you support the supposition that the entire political spectrum in the West has shifted to the right. You reacted viscerally when I mentioned Peterson and missed the mark, losing sight of what I wanted you to clear up. Yet, even though it bucked you off my original question, I greatly appreciated reading Nathan J. Robinson's piece. It was worth the side trip.
1: Before you before you answer, yeah. I want to say I take I take responsibility. I think I got fired up first. And I probably got you fired up about it, too, because I was like, fuck this guy. (laughs) Fuck him, stupid fucking idiot. So I apologize, Jeremy. I think that was on me for leading Max astray. So
0: listen, Jordan Peterson's become a meme for the alt-right at this point. Another one who is just in it for the money, got sucked into Daily Wire's universe now putting out all this. Somebody who hit on a theme as a professor who has the Ph.D. to back it up so he sounds reasonable but literally offers nothing constructive into the mix. So you're right. It's easy to go off on a Peterson tangent, to stay right on the concept itself, that the entire political spectrum in the West has shifted to the right. I can't give you a short answer, but I would offer you the entire back catalog of UNFTR, because I think what we're trying to show and to demonstrate here, or what's emerging, and I, and I, it, obviously that's a, kind of a throwaway statement that sounds like I'm being sardonic, but I, I came into this with certain ideas and certain fundamental understandings of elements of our uh, economy and our politics that went off the rails and went and was sort of a, a response and a reaction to the liberalization of the new deal and the great society. So as a general framework, I think the understanding that I'm coming to is that the forces were more deliberately aligned than even I had given credit to. So the response in the United States to the New Deal was a, a retrenchment of that philosophy during uh, the Second World War and after. Because America was crippled by the Great Depression and shocked that after the Industrial Revolution in the Roaring Twenties, that it could be taken down so i mean so like wholeheartedly across the board everything failed in america in the 30s there were no bright spots save for a, a handful of speculators on wall street and it caused this psychological reexamination of everything that we thought that we stood for in a capitalist society post revolution right and we were looking at Other actors across the pond that looked like maybe they were gaining momentum with a philosophy, and that scared the shit, and that was communism, obviously, and that scared the shit out of the entrenched powers that be that found themselves moneyed interest again after the war. And so I think modern American history and the shift to the right is we were going very hard to the left under FDR, to, to the point where we went to uncomfortable places for FDR himself. And then we came back to the right after the war because that's what war does. And perpetuating the wartime economy was incredibly important to not just the moneyed interest, but to the labor economy as well. We had to keep the engine rolling because those people had a memory of how hard it was during the Great Depression, during the 30s and the 40s. And then you come out of this and you see the mixing of the so anti-war sentiment, the great society and, and uh, the civil rights era also caused us to lurch back in response to the left. And there were elements of that that were so important from a societal perspective and were so overdue that they bubbled up and they finally broke loose. And then beginning in the 1970s, all of those interests on the right more so than I had even realized, got together deliberately to craft a plan to drag the country back to the right. So my starting point here, I guess, is coming out of the 60s. My second starting point is coming out of the 60s. Civil rights, voting rights, the liberalization of uh, the economy, also at a point when we had our highest union membership in in the nation's history, people doing well, and new people finally entering into the political system and the economy. And that was women and black people in this country. And then, starting in the 1970s, maybe it was the Powell memo, maybe it was the Chicago school coming to prominence and getting some papers published or what have you. But starting in the 70s, there was a deliberate attack on these left-leaning policies from the moneyed interests and the elite in America that were determined to recapture power and hold it. And bit by bit by bit, we have gone back further to the right to where you see the large disenfranchisement of black people in the voting system and in America, to where you see that inequality has risen back to even higher than it was leading into the Great Depression or the stock market crash in 29, to where you see that social safety nets that were once considered, I mean, a given, have been steadily chipped away at with social security going up in age, with Medicare and Medicaid being covering less and less, with the expenses rising out of control and us not being able to contain those costs or do anything for social services to be able to offset them, and so on and so on. So again, my answer to this question is the back catalog, and it's all of these different actors What is new and different to me is how the confluence of actors was maybe more scripted than I had originally thought. I thought a lot of it was happenstance, but I think a lot of it actually turned out to be very deliberate, and there were very few people behind it who were selling this message to the public and winning along the way.
1: So it's obviously not an easy prescription to be like, go listen back to all of our episodes because we have you know 70 main ones and then all the offshoots at this point
0: but Jeremy's been with us for a while too yeah well,
1: so. but you know to to refamiliarize and for anyone else who maybe is, uh, is questioning so what about the libertarian episodes as a good refresher because I do recall talking about the Overton window and that and that to me feels like the actual physical manifestation of this topic would you agree
0: yeah absolutely yeah. The, so that's the part one and the part two. Uh, if you go all the way back, actually, if you pair that up with the corporate irresponsibility episodes, and then I guess the fuck Milton Friedman episode, the Chicago school episode, like those, those five, I think, give you a, a pretty decent historical primer on the evolution. And we covered Buchanan in the second part. Of the Libertarian series, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. So again, looking at all those authors, and I think it would be useful for us. I have a a running document called The Worst People in the World. Um, It's just a picture of me. But it's – I think that name was actually taken from another publication. So I got to – I have to make sure that I'm I'm not stealing that. What do they call that when comedians have the same – Parallel thinking. Yeah, I want to make sure that it's not parallel thinking or just outright theft. But like the worst (laughs) – so the running idea is to like the worst men in history, but in chronological order and to women. talk about. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> that's an, that's the thing about it. It's like they're men. It's men. <laughs> it's, it's, it's white guys. I'm um, just
1: trying to fight for equality in all places. <laughs>
0: I hear you. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I had this like running idea that we can do an episode. On the contribution of each of these men in chronological order to show how they, they were like building blocks to, to fuck us to where we are how today. How is that
1: going to be an episode? Yeah. That's like, that's a, that's a, it's showing in it of itself.
0: Yeah, maybe. It could be. Well, maybe None that's one of our offshoots, offshoot. right? Yeah. Anyway. But thank you, Jeremy H., for uh, uh, getting me back on track to actually answer the question that you asked as opposed to going down the Peterson rabbit hole.
1: Whoever called you long-winded. <laughs> So now we're moving on to social and I know we're, we're running a little long again, so we apologize. But I think once we get all the, the health care disinformation, <laughs> Max's bad ideas out of our system, that's right, uh, we'll, we'll be able to move on succinctly. <laughs> <This is> <laughs> so this is on student debt. Eric said, Hi, Max. This Intercept article from 2020 popped up in my Facebook feed a few days ago. It's called Joe Biden's role in creating the student debt crisis stretches back to the 1970s. As a senator, Joe Biden supported several bills that contributed to the rise in borrowing from 1.8 billion in 1977 to 12 billion in 1989. Well, <sighs> oh, fucking Christ.
0: Yeah, Joe Biden supported mostly bad shit.
1: Uh, what? No. Yep. No, that's not my president.
0: Which is so interesting. Who said it before? Uh It's okay. It's okay. It yeah. just like, god, I want to hate this guy, but again, one one of the not not to keep prolonging this, but if you are conservative, this is the point we made last week. If you're conservative, you hate Joe Biden because he's doing everything that he promised. If you are a moderate establishment Democrat, you love Joe Biden because he's doing everything that he promised. And if you're progressive, you hated the promises. That's sort of the encapsulation of this guy. I'm beginning to believe that Joe Biden, fighting for the crime bill, as vociferously as he did, really believed that black people in this country were causing more harm and violence than any other group and that they needed to be healed and put in jail with severe sentences. And along came Bill Clinton and made that a reality. I believe that that, that Joe Biden really thought that. And that's why he was authentically who he was. Right. By the same token, I believe that Joe Biden thought it was pretty fair to give $10,000 in student debt relief because he said so. And he was probably keenly aware that he was responsible, partially responsible for passing legislation that made student borrowing increase as dramatically as it did. Just as I have to applaud him, you know, you don't see a lot of people in media right now talking about how Joe Biden has pulled us out of so many foreign entanglements but here we are he's used the drone strikes maybe half a dozen times and again every drone strike to me illegal extrajudicial and unconstitutional just shouldn't be a fucking thing that we do
1: you sounded like Bernie there
0: (laughs) judicial but you know his predecessor his fucking president that he served under as VP used it like he was popping aspirin And Trump, forget about it, right? So, I mean, there's so much stuff where I'm just like, "Fuck!" can you imagine if this guy was actually progressive, the shit that would be getting done? But right now, what we're getting is a level status quo administration that's kind of keeping its promises, whether we like it or not. It's fascinating shit. And I do think they're beginning to, have you seen, they're, they're sort of beginning to signal like, one term, we're good. We got so much shit done. We good.
1: I saw some some polling about Bernie saying that his like approval basically for a candidacy was like the highest of anyone polled. Again. No. Yet again. Just let us have it. I know he's old, but at least he's got it. Just give me my first Jewish president, please.
0: God love it if Bernie was in office, man.
1: It would be so fun. Every day would be an adventure.
0: And all the shit that wouldn't have happened or would have gone right as opposed to years. Or could the go right in the future. Years. We have yeah. to,
1: hopeful, remember? Yeah. I think what you said before is like, it sounds like an ancient proverb. It was like, if you like Joe Biden, it should be on a bumper sticker. It's like, if you teach a man to fish. <laughs>
0: it's true, though, right?
1: What you said or the yeah. bumper sticker?
0: Yeah, all the above. I think so. Right?
1: yeah because it's like I always say we all hate Joe Biden just for different reasons, yeah for the most part, except the moderate people you mentioned.
0: And even those people aren't like, yeah, it's my guy. I'm riding with Biden. He's They're just a, like he has new personality yeah, no personality anymore. What's so complicated about uh, progressive politics is the establishment Democrats win elections.
1: we need like we need a, a man on the inside. We need our, our own Hercules Mulligan. Who can?
0: We had a spy
1: on the inside. That's for Hercules Mulligan. We need that. So we need like an old white man to run on really moderate shit and just like virtue signal to the right too, and like just.
0: Who was it? Was it one of the young fuckers? Said, uh, "Fuck it, we should just run Republicans." That yeah. cloaked it right. Yeah,
1: yeah. but I'm I'm ser- that's the like, long
0: game right there. Yeah,
1: imagine if Biden was secretly, you know, like if we just. Let's do it. We could do like a Mugatu from Zoolander. Like, I have a sleeper agent. What if it's you?
0: What if it is me?
1: What if we start... We can bring back your Republican history. Ugh. and you have to do that? Because we, no, I'm serious. You like, we I lay the groundwork it. and we're like, look, we realize, you know, he's not a Republican anymore, but he's like a moderate Democrat. And, you know, he doesn't really believe that college should be free because some people earned it. But like... Let's give more student aid out or something. And, you know, let those people have it and whatever. And if you have loans, you have to pay for them. But, like, that's okay. And then you get in there and you're just like, fuck all of you. And you just fucking tear it down.
0: Because we need campaign finance reform.
1: Yeah. And you can do it from the inside. You can get a bunch of money. You can prove how, like, illegal it is and bad. And be like, look at all this money I raised. (laughs) And then we can give it away. And I could be your VP.
0: Yay. What if I was born in another country?
1: Well, I think that's a bridge we'll cross when we come to it.
0: <laughs> Brian G. said, Max, I love this podcast from the beginning, and while I don't always agree with you, I learned something from the experience. Cool. I rarely comment unless I have something to say, but your recent comments about, oh boy, <laughs> vaccines got my blood boiling enough to write. You always say that we should trust science and the facts as liberals, yet repeat anti-vax talking points that have been thoroughly debunked. While it is healthy to remain skeptical, you make the same mistakes as anti-vaxxers do when they ignore science and it comes to their children's health. Your hypocrisy is disheartening. I'll try to remain constructive by stating the facts backed up by factual science. First of all, the large number of vaccines that doctors give to children do not cause harm. It's not possible to overload a child's immune system by giving them too many vaccines. Studies have repeatedly demonstrated that the recommended vaccines are no more likely to cause adverse effects when given in combination than they are when administered separately. So Brian goes on with uh, a number of other points, but that is uh, basically the gist of it. He, he gives some facts to back that up or some claims to back that up because there's no citations in here. But suffice to say that I think I'm going to close the door on the discussion with a, I hear you, you're right. And I'm going to be more deliberate in my comments going forward.
1: So So bold of you. Is it? I don't know.
0: Now on Twitter, Tomato Top said, hey, everyone, this is a really good summary of where the White House debt cancellation fits into everything. Please check it out. Okay, that's our topical cream. Tomato Top, always a big fan and always out there keeping the fire alive on Twitter. I really appreciate that. And then Will Watkins IV, hold. I am William Wallace. Said topical cream episode on student debt relief. My worry is complacency generated by a well-fought small victory. I'm with you there. Let's treasure the win, cheer it through November, then go back to kicking ass after Dems and progressives hold the house. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But remember, progressives, like I said at the end of the episode, take heart. This isn't even a conversation without progressives pushing for so long. So Will Watkins is 100% right. Let's ride this through the midterms. Let's cheer. Let's fight for progressive issues and candidates. And then dig back in. Because before you know it, the big election will be here. Ooh, and in between, county, state, council, towns, cities, cities. Those elections come up in between. There's always an election.
1: Municipalities.
0: Municipalities. um, Sanitation districts. Special elections. You name it. There you go.
1: High schools.
0: Yes. Your school board. Yeah. We have some crazy shit happening by us on school boards, too, during COVID. Holy fuck. Oh, yeah. We were not immune to that. It's also
1: like a weird... I mean... There's just so much weird drama that happens at the school board level. That is... I think... Should it have surprised me? No. Did it? Yes. Because yep. <laughs> the anybody picture can, that...
0: Anybody can run.
1: Yeah. The picture that society paints is like the PTA mom who's making brownies, but it's really like the bitch who hates CRT. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> calling your teachers yeah. racist. Yeah. Um, okay. So this is a healthcare tweet from Midwest Monster who said, the healthcare episode actually brought up uh, some pretty traumatic memories. 99-2. I brought up traumatic memories. I'm sorry. (laughs) Both hosts are not afraid to lay bare their mistakes or emotions about their beliefs and experiences, which wouldn't has paralyzed me with anxiety because I'm a blue dot in red hell and have threats for openly professing the ideas and concerns in the show. But later says that said this podcast and its family has given me hope that I haven't had in a long time. Thanks for that because some folks are very alone.
0: Thank you, Midwest monster. Thank Thank you, you, Midwest Midwest Monster. monster. So Old Turk said... I don't know about the North versus South Democrat backbiting during the Carter administration, but things start making sense when viewed from that lens at UNFTR pod might make a good future. Tell me a story if it fits somewhere. Uh, Yeah, Old Turk, I think I'll do you one better on that. And uh, really, I think I'll do you one better on that. We'll talk about that another time. But thank you.
1: And then Got Shirley shared an article about the generations and said, fucking fascinating. The descriptions are spot on why what changes in society current and historical causes this quote trend this one's for you max
0: mm-hmm. thank you got Shirley, do you want to link it in the show notes
1: yes we will do you want to open it and see what it says about your generation quickly i mean it must be fun if she sent it i think
0: i did
1: and this generation is comprised of old cranky white men
0: it's not a secure website just fyi well
1: there's no s in the link that might be why I had no problem on my desktop.
0: Okay. Generation X. That's my generation. Sometimes um, referred to as the Lost Generation. This was the first generation of latchkey kids exposed to daycare and divorce. Mm. Often characterized by high levels of skepticism. What's in it for me attitude, and a reputation for some of the worst music to ever gain <laughs> popularity? What is this? What the <laughs> fuck? But we're arguably the best educated generation. Okay. And that education, growing maturity, they're starting to form families with a higher level of caution and pragmatism than their parents demonstrated. Concerns run high over avoiding broken homes, kids growing up without a parent around, and financial planning. I wonder when this was written.
1: Yeah, I'm confused. Because it's. And they call
0: millenniums and not millennials down below. So also, I think this What is the fuck little, is Echo Boomer?
1: Dated. The largest cohort since the baby boomers? Okay.
0: So, uh, and we're, you're a Gen Z. Right? We're incredibly sophisticated.
1: Child. No, I'm gen- i I'm, I'm a millennial. Kidding. Incredibly sophisticated with technology-wise, immune to most traditional marketing and sales pitches. Mm, that's that's fair. Yeah. Let's see. We're mo- much more racially and ethnically diverse. E-zines. Mm, surely, this is sus. <laughs> uses the word easing. Uh,
0: yeah, I think it's an old article that was maybe updated.
1: Gen Z kids or Gen Y kids often raised in dual income or single parent families have been more involved in family purchases. One in nine Gen Yers has a credit card co signed by parent.
0: I think this is old. Uh, uh,
1: uh, 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 mine might be. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't know. I'm also, can the age brackets seem off? It says the last for millennials is 1994 but I thought it was like 99
0: well let's just say surely I think this is fun it's not science but I like no it.
1: that's why it's called and I take so- issue. socialmarketing.org not I, science.org I take
0: issue with the music
1: well you know mm. that, it felt specifically <laughs> like a shot at you <laughs> All
0: Okay. Right. so we had a bunch of donations that we have to thank everybody for first off Aaron R bought nine coffees said got my coffee and love you guys Someone bought five coffees and said, thanks for all the hard work you do, and we reap the rewards of all that labor. It's my favorite podcast. And Allie K is now a member. Glad to have the extra cash to keep sending your way. Keep it up. Y'all are needed. Bookstore Kim bought three coffees in honor of Nettie McGee. And Max, oat milk is great in coffee, but black is good too. Rounding it out, W. Jeremy D. bought 115 coffees. This is for Nettie. Here's enough for a yearly OC membership. Use it in her honor. We will use it in her honor, and um, but we'll take that offline. That is an outrageous and fitting way to end the show. Thank you for that support. Thank you for the memory of Nettie. And um, that's all I got. All hail Nettie. All hail Nettie.